Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. If you've listened to Shameless before, you'll know that these chats are normally called In Conversations, interviews with influential Australians about their lives, their careers, and what they've learned along the way. And we love doing them, but these are unusual times, and to reflect those times, we will be moving to In Isolation episodes for a little while. Interviews with women and men we know and love, but not from a studio, from their bedroom and lounge rooms, wearing bed socks and pyjamas connected via video link. We will still be asking about their successes and failures, but also about this weird world we've found ourselves in. How are they coping? How are they finding little morsels of light? And how have their views of the world changed when day-to-day life looks nothing like it used to? Because how we respond to a tragedy says a lot about who we are. Are we optimists? Pessimists? Something in between. And in a search for meaning, what can a global pandemic uncover about ourselves? Welcome to this In Isolation episode of Shameless with Hugh Van Kylenberg. If you're unfamiliar with the name, Hugh is the school teacher turned mental health pioneer behind the Resilience Project, an organisation that works with schools, sports clubs and businesses, providing evidence-based positive mental health strategies to build resilience and happiness. Some of the country's sharpest minds and brightest talents credit Hugh for their calm disposition and positive perspective on life, so we thought there was no man we'd prefer to sit down and chat with right now. From the trip to northern India that changed Hugh's life to what his sister's battle with anorexia taught him about trauma, Hugh has a lot to say about this weird period of our lives and we hope you take something away from this conversation because Mish and I certainly did. Just a really quick note before we jump in, this chat does cover issues around disordered eating and may be triggering for some listeners. Here's Hugh. Hugh van Kylenberg, welcome to Shameless in Isolation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, girls. We are starting every episode at the moment asking the same thing, and that is, where are you right now? Set the scene for us because we never do these in person. We're so intrigued as to where people are actually sitting, doing their work and doing these interviews. Well, I've just moved, as in I've just moved rooms. I was had a staff meeting just then via Zoom in the study. Feedback was it was very echoey, and I thought, well, for a podcast, I can't have that, so I've moved 
to the front room, which used to be my three-year-old's bedroom, but he's just moved upstairs. So I'm in the front room looking out onto our street and there's sun coming through the trees and it's very, very nice. Beautiful. I love that. Now, Hugh, we start every episode in the exact same way and that's to ask what was your childhood like? What were you like as a kid? Unbelievable. Well, sorry, I was going to say, sorry, I'm not unbelievable. My childhood is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Being arrogant, but that's I was, fine. Yeah, I was unbelievable, guys. No, no, my childhood was unbelievable. We grew up, I mean, you, you honestly couldn't have asked for much more. I think the highlight of my childhood would probably be the backyard. We had a, um, a really big property, like it was a long, long backyard that as a kid, it felt like you were going into the I don't know, like the forest, it was just incredible. It probably wasn't that big now, but uh, no, we, we, amazing child, spent a lot of time in the backyard. I have a, a, a younger sister, Georgia, who we might talk about a bit later in the podcast because she's been quite inspirational, influential on my career. And my younger brother, Josh, was six years younger than me. And if I think about my childhood, it's playing cricket outside in summer with my dad or my family. And I think about winter, it's playing football in the backyard. And a lot of laughter. We, yeah, we, it's something we definitely value in my family is humour and, and um, a lot of laughter. And just I have the most, yeah, I have the most incredible memories. I, I blessed absolutely. I mean, you hear about awful things that, that kids go through, or you, you read about it and see it. But I, um, yeah, unbelievably blessed. And as a kid, it might surprise people who know me or know my work, but uh, very, very shy. I, well, I heard this story the other day for the first time, which is a beauty, and it probably explains why I was shy. But mum says I wasn't always shy. She said up to three, I was very confident and, and loved going and chatting to people. But when I was three, I went through a stage where I loved, so mum got a new handbag and she discarded her handbag and I said, well, I'll have that one. And I used to walk around wearing, wherever we went out, I would wear mum's handbag, her old handbag. So we'd both go out of the house together, both wearing handbags. <laughs> and I, uh, <laughs> and uh, but because it was such a, a big handbag, it was for my mum, it would fall off my shoulder. So I'd actually have one arm straight up in the air just to make sure it didn't just slide off. Yeah, so I'd walk everywhere. Apparently, I walked everywhere with one arm in the air and my handbag just hanging off my shoulder. And we went to mum's friend's house one day and she had and all the friends were over and, and I had some older kids there and they're all in the backyard. And I said to mum, I'm going out to play with everyone. And they're all boys. And mum said, Oh, darling, I might take your handbag. And apparently, I said, No, I'm going to show the boys my handbag. And apparently I came back in the house five minutes later bawling my eyes out because they took the handbag off me and, and beat me up with it. <laughs> beat me up with it. And uh, mum reckons ever since that point, I became very, very shy. So um, I was a shy kid, but I was obsessed with cricket and football and athletics and basketball. I just love sport. And um, yeah, I think that's the summary of my childhood. <laughs> that is quite a story, I have to say. You have created an incredible movement with the Resilience Project is why everybody seems to know who you are right now. And it all started with, or most of it seemed to start with a trip to Northern India in 2008. I wanted mm. to ask you what it was about that trip that changed the course of your life, because it seems like it really did. Well, I think... Um, what I should probably say, which I don't often say, is that I actually didn't want to go to India to start with. I was actually, my ex-partner was very keen to go over and travel and I was thinking, why would we, we've got everything we need here in Melbourne and life's great here and she was the one who really pushed us to go and I, and I didn't want to go and I, I don't give her much credit for that. But we ended up travelling India and it was a bit just the two of us going away and it was going to be backpacking and I was going to be playing a bit of cricket. And um, I, well, she was a teacher and I was a teacher. We both still, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure she's still a teacher. And she said, uh, let's go and do some teaching. And I said, okay, we'll go and find a school. We can get paid. We can fund our travel. And she said, no, we should, because I get credit all the time for people going, oh, you're so amazing going and doing that volunteering. But 
she said, let's go volunteer with our desperately need teachers. And my, honestly, I said, no, no, we should find a school where we can get paid and we can travel more. And she was the one who said, no, we should volunteer. And so we ended up volunteering up in, as you said, um, up in the desert, up in the far north of India in a Himalayan community called Tixay. It's the most stunning community you'll ever see. T-H-I-C-K-S-E-Y is how it's spelt on one street sign. At the other end of the village, it's spelt a different way. It's T-I-C-K-S-E-Y, so Tixay, right in the middle of the, of the Himalayas. And it's a desert community. And I, we were going to do a couple of weeks. And I remember my first day in the school. I mean, when I say desert community, it's everything you're probably imagining. Like it's a, there's no running water. There's no electricity. There are no beds. People sleep on the, on the floor. It's a very poor community. And I just remember on my first day in the school, and one kid in particular, I remember thinking, my gosh, I've never seen joy like this in my entire life. Like this, these people, this kid, they're just the happiest people I've ever met. And I remember thinking, that's just extraordinary considering I know a lot of people back home. Well, my sister was, I, I mean, we, you know, we did our two weeks and um, I remember lying on the dirt floor one night and I couldn't sleep. And the reason I couldn't sleep was I was thinking about my little sister, Georgia. Uh, when my sister, Georgia, was 14 years old, I mean, I talked before about a really happy childhood. It sort of changed when we were, my sister was 14 and I was 16. We stopped being a happy family. But my sister was diagnosed with a mental illness, anorexia nervosa, and it, yeah, it just it completely ravaged her. Well, if you know someone, all the listeners, if you know someone with a mental illness, you know very well it is not just that person who struggles with a mental illness. It's the people who are close to them, the people who love them. We all get, I mean, what I'm trying to say is it completely ravaged our family. And my sister, uh, 18 years old, she's in hospital because she's dropped below crisis weight. I remember the doctor said to me when we visited her in hospital, he said, he walked in, he said, oh, sorry, guys, you got to go. I said, mate, we've been here for two hours. And he said, you only get two hours. And he said, I've told your sister if she can put on a bit more weight before tomorrow, you can stay for more than two hours tomorrow. It was like we're sort of her incentive. And I said, how much weight does she need to put back on? So I can stay for more than two hours tomorrow. And he said to me, um, he said, I've told your little sister if she can get back up to. And my sister's not a short person. He said, if she can get back up to 31 kilograms, wow. I'll consider letting you stay for more than two hours. So I remember at that point, I remember my, my family, would, I remember we left that hospital day, the first visit, I remember leaving the hospital and I was in tears walking towards the car. And so was mum and dad and my brother. And I had this feeling of like, I just wish I knew what I could do to help mum and dad to be happy again and my little brother and myself and my sister. But it actually, you know, this is a very long answer to your question, but I didn't really find anything until 10 years later until I was living in, in this desert community. So I'm lying on the dirt floor thinking, I don't get this. How is my sister who grew up in Australia with a loving family, a nice enough home, a beautiful home and went to good schools, we'd had everything we ever needed growing up in life, but my sister found it very hard to be happy. Yet these people that I was living with sleeping on a desert floor, I felt like I'd never seen joy like it, yet they had so very little. So two weeks ended up turning into about, I remember thinking to myself, I've got to stay here and I want to stay here, you know, as long as it takes me to work out, what do these people do every day that just makes them so happy? And so I ended up staying for, I think about three and a half months in the end, I can't remember exactly, but in that three and a half months, I just was there really to try and learn what are these people doing that, uh, that we don't do. And could anything here sort of help my little sister, I guess, is the very, very long answer to your question. <laughs> but it's a brilliant answer and I want to know what were some of the key takeaways then? You were observing these people for three and a half months. What were some of the things that you noticed about their happiness? Uh, well, there were three things that really stood out to me, which is sort of what the Resilience Project has based our 
when I came back to Melbourne and my mind was sort of blown by what I'd seen and what I'd experienced, we sort of didn't really have a choice, but you live life like these these people do. I mean, the way we were different was we were able to go into the major city every now and again just to, you know, stay in a hotel and have a shower, the stuff that they weren't getting. But they were unbelievably generous people. Like they they would give us, I think it was once a month or maybe it was once every two weeks they'd offer us a goat as like a, so we could have meat and and they they wouldn't have it. And the reason was they can't afford to have it. Like they, they I think they could afford to have it once every, I don't know, three or four months or something. Yet they were insisting that we would have it, you know. I didn't want to eat goat, but it was <laughs> it doesn't look very appetizing. <laughs> but you feel very bad not having it. So, but anyway, there were three things that I saw these people practice. And I apologize if people have heard me speak before. I apologize if this bores people. But I, I just think particularly what we're going through right now in the world, these three things are so unbelievably important. So the three things I saw them practice essentially every day were gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. It has a lovely acronym, Gem, which I didn't realize and into a couple of years of preaching this stuff. But um, <laughs> I remember a lady said to me once, she walked past me in the street and I didn't know who she was. And she said, I'm practicing Gem. And I went, right, thanks very much. And I thought, what on earth is going on there? And then I realized that six months later, she was referring to gratitude, empathy, mindfulness. But yeah, so um, gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness, they're the three things that I saw this community stop their day and practice every day. And they're things that we don't, well, I've been running around the country for the last 10 years saying, I don't think we're very good at them, but we have actually been shown up in the last couple of months. We've been busted. Like we are not good at this stuff. And it's it's come to light in the last couple of months. It's fine. We're not bad people, but we're not very good at these three things. and And it's been demonstrated to us. We've been caught out. We are not good at these three things. What does gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness actually look like to you? I know that sounds like a very yeah. simple question, but no, I think no. for a lot of people, it's like, how do I become good at this? Like, how do I bring this into my life? No, it's a, it's a great question, polite resonator. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone wondering what that's referring to, every time we log on to these video calls, everyone's assigned very random names except for me. I just get my boring email address. Zara's name that has been generated for her today is polite resonator. Hugh, you are decisive moonwalker, <laughs> which I'm not even going to begin to try to get into. To that I have no idea what's going on there. I would love so much to be referred to as that from now on by everyone from decisive moonwalker. In the podcast title, we won't put here. We'll just put in isolation with decisive moonwalker. I think people will be very disappointed when they log in and find out who it is. But no. So the question is, what 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 does gratitude look like? Okay. So I'll, I'm, and rather than giving you a definition, I'll tell you a story. Penny and I spent my wife Penny and I and Benji when he was. Uh, we now have an eight week old, a nine week old, and a three year old. But when Benji was only my son was only two years old, we based ourselves in Broome for a little bit. And if you haven't been to Broome, anyone listening, my gosh, beautiful part of the country. It's just stunning. Very expensive, but it's very very nice. We uh, went to Broome and we were visiting a couple of schools. And a principal in one of the local schools said to me, "You want to talk about gratitude?" He said, "How's this for a story?" He said, "I um." went to a school down south from here. He said it was a corrugated iron shed, indigenous kids, very poor community. I said, I walked in there and there's a kid in the front row wearing a pair of shorts on, tattered old shorts, that's it, and he had one shoe on, that's it. And he said, I saw him at lunchtime kicking the football with one shoe on. And I went up to him and I just said, oh, mate. And I said to him, look, you've lost your shoe. And he said, he smiled, he looked at me, he said, no, I found a shoe. (laughs) And he he said he had a massive smile on his face and he said, that's gratitude. And it is because gratitude is where you pay attention to what you've got. You don't worry about what you don't have. So many of us in Australia spend all our time thinking about the stuff that we wish we had in order to be happy. If I drove a car like that, then I'd feel happy. If I got this promotion, then I'd feel happy. If we lived in a house like that, then we'd feel happy. If that's how you live your life, it's going to be very hard for you to be happy. 
because you might end up driving that car or you might end up living in that house. But we know what we're like. Six months later, you see a nicer car. Shit, actually, if I drove a car like that, then I'd feel happy. Gratitude is where happiness comes from, and that's when you look at what you already have. We have got so much here in Australia, but we miss the things we have all the time. And the amazing thing is that right now, things are being taken away from us all the time. Every day we wake up, no, you can't do this, no, you can't do that. So many things we love doing. But if we're being really honest with ourselves, they're things that we weren't properly enjoying. Like we weren't, we'd go to the football, you know, this is just an example for me, but like I like going to the football, sitting there enjoying football, amazing. Like the MCG, incredible. Get on a train, it takes me 15 minutes from my home. But I'd get there and go, I didn't want to sit here. I wanted to sit over there. If I sit over there, that's where I, they're the best seats, my gosh. And then, oh, the line to get a beer, it's going to take me five minutes to get a beer. That kind of stuff. Like I would give anything now to be sitting at the football in a seat where it's not ideal and then waiting for a beer for five minutes. That would be amazing. But we were whinging about the smallest things. And I think we've all realized, everyone's saying, I took this for granted, I took this for granted. What we're saying is, I wasn't an overly grateful person, but I think now it's been really demonstrated to us what gratitude looks like and how we need to be when they let us out of here, you know, what, like the way we need to carry ourselves, gratitude when you pay attention to what you've got. It's so funny that you say that because I was sitting at the grand final last year. I'm a mad Richmond supporter, like yeah. my entire family was sitting at the grand final. And I remember distinctly in the third quarter being like, God, it would have been nice for this to be a closer game. It's like, just <laughs> fucking appreciate what you've got. You're sitting at the grand final where your team is winning by like 80 points. Why are you sad? <laughs> and that is, that is the perfect example. That is just the perfect example. We're so good at paying attention to this. I wish this was close. I wish my team wasn't winning the grand final by this much. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know, what was the moment for you? I mean, we're asking everyone who do these interviews with us the same question here because I find this so interesting. Was there a moment for you where you realized that normal was going to change for a long time? Because I think we each had that moment at different times in the year. Some of us had it deep into March. Others had it in January even. I want to know, when did that moment come for you and where were you? What was the thing that kind of occurred to you that went, right, things are going to change and they're going to change quite drastically for me? I was driving down the East Link in Melbourne and it was cold and wet and my general manager from the Reserves Project called me and said, mate, so we've, we, uh, every year I go and do, we do our usual school programs and corporate programs and sporting programs, but I also sort of tour the country and, and give, I don't know what you call it, like I do, I think we call them shows now, but they're, they're, you know, they're public talks. Anyone can come along, no matter, just just buy a ticket and come along. And we had, um, I was pretty excited, we'd just released our dates. for We'd, we'd had, um, I think it was 18 shows across the country and we'd sold out the first three or four and I couldn't wait and he called me and said, oh, we have to make a call. I don't think, we had one for March the 26th. And he said, I don't think we can do it. And I said, oh, I reckon if we, it's 2,500 people coming. We hadn't been told we couldn't do this stuff. It was like, we advise you don't do this stuff. And I said, well, there's, we've got a responsibility to do the right thing and set an example, but I think people need it right now. And he said, no, no, I don't think you get it, mate. We, we absolutely cannot do that. And I said, well, we've got another one coming up. In, I said, we can reschedule it to May. He said, good idea. And then two weeks later, he called and said, mate, we, May's not. And I, that's when I realized that, that's kind of the thing I love most, these big shows we do in the country. That's for me. I just I just love those so much because I hang around at the end and I just chat to people. And, and um, when I realised that wasn't going to happen this year, I also realised that I wasn't going to be able to go and see The National, uh, which is my favourite thing in the world to do, my favourite band, The National. Couldn't go and see them on April the 1st, which I've been hanging. And I think those things, when that, I went, oh, my gosh, life's different. 
And to go one step further with your question, yesterday I realized I'd actually not only realized but accepted it and was embracing because I embracing it. I was walking down to our local cafe with my son and he had decided he was going to stand on every single cobblestone on the way. And I realized I wasn't in a rush to stop him and go, mate, come on, we need to hurry. I was like, no, we can actually do this. So it took us a long time to get there. We held hands and he said some very incredibly cute things along the way. Out of nowhere, he told me he was okay. He said, I'm okay, daddy. And I went, okay. I didn't ask, but that's good to know. Anyway, and I realized how much I was enjoying that. And I saw a news alert come up saying the headline, it was a bit of clickbait, but it said like, when can we start easing the restrictions? And my first thought was, no, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm actually enjoying this right now. This is, I can't stop working. Like for years, I've been trying to slow down and just take it back with a step, but I haven't been able to say no. And this has forced me to. And I kind of realized yesterday, not only have I realized it, but I've actually accepted it and kind of embraced it and gone, this is my life right now. And um, yeah, I needed to stop. I think the whole world needed to stop. I wish it was under different circumstances, but we've been forced to stop. And I do think in a lot of regards, not downplaying how serious loss livelihood is and loss of lives is but um yeah there is a silver lining as well i wanted to ask you about you and your response to this crisis because i guess what mish and i found ourselves when we were prepping for this interview today i was like i'm really really intrigued as to how you found yourself responding to this global crisis and whether you felt any pressure to respond in like quote unquote yeah. the right way given this is your day job like the resilience yeah. project how yeah. has that kind of process been for you going through those motions Oh, it's a fascinating question because I have felt pressure to be totally fine and go, well, he's the resilience guy, so he must be fine. He's the I'm, expert on this. Yeah, yeah. But then I realized I never once got up on stage and said, okay, guys, I'm the expert, so this is what you do. I actually get up on stage and say, here's a beautiful story about this person who does this really well. Here's a beautiful person about this person who does this well. Gee, we could learn off them. I've never once said, guys, try and be like me because I, I don't claim to be I'm very lucky. I've always been a very, very happy person. And so that has certainly helped me. But um, one of the big parts about happiness is that it is completely unrealistic to think that you are always going to feel happy. That's one of the the biggest issues we have is we just, we say to ourselves, oh, when this happens, then I'll be happy and life will be good and that's it. But life is full of ups and downs. And there's a lot of times we're not happy and that's okay. In fact, it's it's sort of normal to not be okay a lot of the time. So for me, early on in this whole thing, I had some moments of I was quite down and quite flat and really struggling with it. And, you know, we got an eight-week-old who, who a nine-week-old who's not sleeping during the day and a three-year-old who 80% of the time is beautiful and so lovely, but 20% of the time is a complete psychopath. So I'm thinking, I don't know if this is a good time for us to, I mean, Penny and I have been married for, we've been, we've been together for about six years now. And um, I realized we actually had our first ever fight really two weeks ago when it was all becoming a bit too much. And it happened in front of Benji. And it was because the, it all, the TV remote, I couldn't get it to work. He was going to be watching Frozen 2. The remote stopped working and I was like, oh, this is the worst time right now. Elsie's crying. Benji starts, so Penny and I start fighting about something else. Something else came up and Benji got so, so upset he came and ran and he'd never seen his fight before. He went and grabbed the other remote and threw it against the wall and smashed it to a thousand pieces. And we kind of all just went, okay, let's walk away from this. And I was sitting there just going, oh my God, this is so flawed. I can't handle this. And my first thought was, no, I have to be able to handle it because I'm like the resilience guy. And then I went, no, I don't have to. <laughs> it's okay to not be okay. <laughs> and I'm struggling and that's totally fine. And everyone's struggling. We're all in this together. And I think the moments I haven't been okay, I've just reminded myself that that's a big part of being a human being is sometimes you're not okay and it's totally normal to not be okay. And that's made me feel, I suppose, a lot better. <laughs> you do seem to have such good intuition though. I think the Resilience Project has been 
so ubiquitous and so popular because it has really struck a chord with so many people. And I want to know, as someone who you seem to me anyway to be quite observational and really Mm. great at reading the mood of a room, and I want to know, how would you label the predominant feeling right now? How do you think the average person is feeling about everything going on? What's the emotion? Well, I think we're doing really well. I honestly think we're doing really well. I, I, if, you, if you watch the news, if you get stuck watching the news, you probably feel like we're not doing too well. And that's, I'm not having a crack at the news. Like they're, they're, they do a great job reporting what's going on, but it's all, it's not overly positive. But if you, you know, I, I see things, I'm seeing things at the moment I've never seen before. Like I went to go for a run yesterday at my local park and it was packed. Not no one breaking social isolation rules. Like it was people by themselves outside doing their I saw couples everywhere kicking the football and I saw people sitting down listening to music and I saw you know by themselves or I saw families out there at three o'clock in the afternoon dads kicking the footy with their kids and I mean there is no way you could tell Benji would if someone asked Benji he's out there's no way Benji would say what's going on right now is bad he'd be like this is the greatest thing you know and I, I kind of feel like our kids, I, I'm not for all of them. There's going to be some really awful things that happen with what happens with families being stuck in houses together. But what I'm seeing is like there is no kid right now that I'm seeing who's going, oh, this is so bad, dad and mum are home all the time. <laughs> it's like how good is this? So what I'm saying, look, I talk to everyone there. Like everyone I walk past in the street, complete strangers, g'day, hey, across the road, how are you going? Yeah, not too bad. How are you guys coping? That's really nice. Like connection's good for us. We are put on the earth to connect. But the last few years, we walk around, we stare at our screens, we got our headphones in. If I see someone walking down the street towards me, I'll take my headphones out because I'm like, oh, opportunity to connect. And I see them doing the same. They're like, so I, I feel like what I'm seeing, and that's all I can answer the question about what I'm seeing is we're doing really well. And I'm, I struggle to think there's going to be some really sad stories. There's going to be some awful, like anything, like anything in life, there's going to be some really sad components to this and and the financial pressures this is going to cause, the issues in mental health, and I, I shudder to think around suicide down down the track. But what I'm seeing day to day right now, I mean, it's April, the weather's still nice, it's sunny, there's going to be some tough moments coming up. But I, I see a, a bit of pride as well. Like I feel like whenever I hear we're flattening the curve, I feel like people are going, yeah, we, we've done well here. Good on us. Like we, we've, we've responded well. So I, it's a really nice thing you say about me reading a room, but I... Um, I've always been fascinated. I watch people nonstop and I'm so, so fascinated by that. And I, I'm impressed you've picked that up in your research. But my hero growing up has, has always, well, my hero now still is Billy Connolly, who's a comedian. He's all about observation. That's his, and I've always wanted to kind of be like him, I guess. And so I do watch people. And, and your question's amazing because I, I ran laps at the park last night. I just watched everyone. And I, I don't think there's anyone I ran past without kind of acknowledging, smiling at, or sort of, you know, the thing you do when you walk past someone, you do like a, it's like, I don't know, the only way to describe it is you'd call it no lips where you kind of like just acknowledge them by making your lips go away. Like you just make your lips disappear. Like, <laughs> kind of like this, this is not a good thing for a podcast. It's not a very, this is a very uh, visual thing. <laughs> so I many people lip. would be doing it themselves right now. If you're trying to like, yeah, try and make your lips disappear basically and then just sort of nod at the same time, that's no lips. I did no lips at everyone at the park last night and it was um, very different to what I would have done two months ago. I would have run past going, these people in my way, I'm trying to do this session, it's a bit annoying. Instead, I'm no lip syncing everyone. It's, it's nice. <laughs> Coming up after the break, where Hugh is finding the light amongst all the confusion. But first, a word from today's sponsor. What is your relationship with fear like? Like, has it changed much in light of what's been going on? 
Ever since the day Benji was born, I became very aware of something which I'd never been aware of before, and it was the fact that I will die one day. And I, I honestly hadn't thought about it. I felt quite invincible. And as soon as I was, as soon as Benji was born, I was like, "Shit, I can't die here. Like, I cannot die." Like, I one of my best mates. He's a, a wonderful person. His name's James, and he lost his father when he was thirteen. And I, I've heard James tell the story before. I played cricket with James, and he got up and told the story of what it was like. He's an incredibly well-adjusted person, James. And um, but I remember thinking at that, Benji was about three months old. I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to die one day. I've got to make sure it's not for a very, very long time. I want to be there for. So I remember thinking, gosh, James's dad would be so proud of him, and it just made me so shattered that James's dad couldn't see what a beautiful person James would turn out to be. So anyway, this has made me to go back to the question around fear. I it's made me think a lot more about death. We hear people that die all the time, and I straight away thought about my parents. And then I thought about my parents, my, my in-laws. I am blessed with the most incredible in-laws who I love, you know, the same way I love my own parents. They're incredible people. And I have been there. So my parents are in their 70s, early 70s, and and my in-laws are, in, are approaching their 70s. I've been worried about them. I, and and I, I fear for, do you know what I fear? Everything is about Benji and Elsie. So I fear Benji and Elsie not having grandparents. They've got four grandparents right now who are obsessed with them and their relationship is stunning. And I don't want to. I just don't want to not have that for them. I, I can't. I cannot think of a world. I just. I. I yeah. I, I might. Yeah. My fear is. I've, it's made me think a lot about my mum and dad and 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 my and Rob and Anne, my my parents in law and and them not being around for obviously for me, but I can't help but think about Benji and Elsie. That's who I think about most. And I think that fear for the elderly people in our lives is so prevalent right now, and I think a lot of us are feeling that. And I want to know in this time of fear and confusion how are you sourcing out light where do you seek light and happiness and laughter in times like this not on my bloody device i can tell you the time i spend staring at my screen i don't feel good afterwards i feel regret and i find what am i doing when, I when you say staring at a screen, what do you mean? Was that like Twitter, Instagram, oh, no, Facebook? No, I've, so I've, I've got off Facebook about a year and a half ago. It was one of the best things I ever did. Got off Twitter. I've still got my accounts, but I never check them. But Instagram's the one that's just, I can't get a, I just, I, I run around the country saying people get off your phone. But since this whole thing started, I've been turning to my phone. There's a few accounts that do great memes that make me laugh a lot. But because you know, I, I, I put a book out last year, I've got a lot of people contacting me. They're writing me really beautiful messages about what the book's done to them. And so I keep going to check that, but then I get stuck looking at other stuff. So, but that's the negatives. That's what I don't like doing um, is getting stuck on Instagram. But what I turn for for light right now is literally light, like being outside, being outdoors. We've got a bit of a front garden, which I've been doing a bit of work on and back garden. And just, just being outside really has been what has really kind of helped me the thing i've laughed at most probably and this is going back online is that the guy that i you guys would know ryan shelton the guy i do a podcast with he's created this he's just creating once a month for this year on the 11th of every month he's creating a video his, his website is ryan with 11 wise.com <laughs> and every and it's because every he's doing 11 months in a row and he's creating these videos and i've been watching his stuff and that i've just got a few people i turn to that i when i watch their stuff they just make me laugh so much. Billy Connolly videos on high repeat. Ryan Ryan Shelton just is a constant source of joy. Uh, it makes me laugh so much. Uh, Hamish Blake stuff online. He's kind of, I feel like Hamish Blake right now has really stepped up and gone, I have the capacity to make everyone happy through what I, I'm going to create videos. And he's just, 
his content's gone through the roof and it's bloody good as well. So I've been watching that. But outside is, it, is a very short answer. <laughs> but I think it's like the most common one. I think I feel exactly the same. And I think we've spoken a lot in this chat already about silver linings and the stuff that, you know, you can savour in this time. I wanted to know what you would encourage people to savour in this time because we're living pretty differently to how we have in the past. It's a far less chaotic existence. And I imagine the chaos was what you were trying to, you know, caution people against in, in much of the work that you've done. Yes. Ironically, I was very caught up in the chaos though. Like I was doing, um, I mean, two years ago, I got to the point where I was doing about 15 talks a week. So that's more than, you know, like I'm doing nearly three a day and going from one school to the next, to the next corporate venue, to the next sporting club. And I was exhausted, but I was telling myself like, no, it's important work, got to do it. But I had a son, like I had a six months old son and my wife, Penny, was looking after him and stuck in bad traffic and then like being annoyed at traffic and all that kind of stuff. I am really savoring the fact that this has made me just stop and I, I, I haven't been in a rush. I feel like my whole life has been in a rush for the last 10 years of my life. I've just been in a rush the whole time. I'm savoring not feeling like I'm in a rush. When Benji wants to take his time, we walk home, we walk a lap of the block, we take our time and I can let him explore we're walking along the river the other day and there was a noise in the grass and he said, is that a snake? And I said, no, no, I think it would be a lizard. And he said, what's a lizard? I said, that's a great question. It's like a snake that's got four legs. And he said, can we see one? And I was about to go, no, no, mate, we're going to get back to the car. And I thought, why? I don't have to get back to the car. I've got nothing to do. There's nothing happening. So we spent, I knew we probably weren't going to find one, but we spent an hour looking for a lizard. We're turning over rocks and we're, I was like, there is no way this would happen in normal life. I'm just not in a rush. And so I think I'd encourage everyone to enjoy that feeling because I know I, there's going to be memes come out in like six months time. There's going to be like, actually, I don't want them to be, be, be around like, oh my God, I wish we could just have a global pandemic again and stop. I didn't have to go to work. I didn't have to. So I'm going to make the most of this feeling of like, I'm not in a rush. Do you think there will be any lasting changes to the way we live? You just touched on it then that maybe 12 months into the future, we'll be talking about all the things we should have done now. Do you think anything will change or do you think it's human nature to experience something like this, think we're all going to change and then revert to exactly how we were before? Uh, such a good question. I actually think about that a lot and I know it takes, I can't remember, it's like 12 weeks to break a habit or something like that and we're going to be exposed to this for more than 12 weeks. But uh, if I'm being honest, I reckon a lot of stuff will go back to normal. I really do, unfortunately. I just think there'll be like, I'll give an example. So when I went to India, it's a perfect example. When I went to, this is what I think the world's going to experience. So when I went to India, I talk about it in the most, when I do my talks, I talk about it as in like, oh, I got to live in this desert community. I learned to practice gratitude and empathy. Mindfulness is so amazing. But really, honestly, a lot of the time I, I was like, I knew we were going to be here for three months and I was like counting down the days going, I just want to get back to Australia so badly. Like, that was isolation, but it was extreme isolation. There's no electricity. No one really spoke English. So Anjali, my ex and my, we had no one else to really speak to. So it's just us two and there's no running water, no electricity, all that kind of stuff. So that was full on isolation, right? I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get back to Melbourne. But I, I was like, but I'm, I'm a changed person. I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to take my time every day. I'm going to like stop and speak to everyone like I did in India. And for two months when I got back to Australia, Two of the best months of my life. So I was like, oh my God, I can go to cafes again. I can sit down and have a coffee with friends. I can go to the pub and have a beer. I can like go to the footy. I can go to the cricket. How good's this? And I loved it. And but I was also like, but I'm this new chilled out guy. I've learned this stuff. Two months later, I was just back to normal Q. I got 
you know, I was back to, to being wound up about small things, being stressed about like we all do and, you know, being rushed. And so I feel like that's what's going to happen. That's my honest opinion. I hope it's not. I hope we make some big changes. I think we've learned a lot of lessons around we don't need to fly to Sydney to have a meeting. We can just do it on Zoom. We don't need to, a lot of stuff like that. But I think for the whole, I feel like for two months, we're going to be this new, excited, how good's this? This is amazing. We're back to normal, but we've learned some stuff. But I feel like two months later, we'll just be back to normal. And we'll be like, yeah, no, we're, everything's fine. We're back to normal now. Do you think there's a way that we can check back in with ourselves? I mean, it sounds like you had that realisation two months after you got back that you reverted back to how you were before your trip. Do you check in with yourself now? Is there anything that you do to kind of pull yourself out of the rush and the busyness and the chaos of every day to try and slow down? Uh, It's a very good question. I found myself doing that when I – so I go overseas a little bit, not as much as I'd like to, but probably before kids I would go back to India each year and visit a different community and every year it was a, it was a um, for probably about four or five years in a row it's a different community but I only had time with work I could only go for about sort of two weeks at a time and that was my way of checking in and going hey this is remember like this is these people here they have so very little but they are in tune with what really counts and that's like a community and connection and that would be good now the best way to really slow down and check in is time spent with my kids so if I'm with Benji on the trampoline I know I've got 15 minutes on the trampoline you want to be mindful and present. You just hang out with a three-year-old. Like he notices everything that's happening right now. Like we'll be on a trampoline and he'll go, all of a sudden he'll go, dude, and that means that a train's gone past. We live probably about 500 metres or 300 metres from the train line. I never hear it, but he, he never misses it. But he never misses it because he's just there. If the moon's out during the day, dad, the moon, oh, there's no way I'd notice it. If a bird flies past and makes a noise, like a bird we're not used to, he'd go, what's that bird? I go, what? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Um, time, spent, time spent with Benji is really powerful as far as just being, making you pay attention to what's happening as it's happening. So, yeah. One question we've asked consistently through doing in conversation episodes is asking people what their definition of success is. And we wanted to keep doing that through these in isolation episodes because we're sensing that it's probably going to change a lot for people. So, what is your definition of success right now at this moment? It doesn't change for me. It's like, this isn't a personal definition for me. This is what I think for all of us is success is it's like making other people's lives better, like being there for other people. And it might be that you are, I'm not saying the more people's lives you help, the more successful you are. I think success is just helping other people to live a better life and being doing things for other people. So you might have a parent right now who is um, elderly and really struggling and really sick and um, you're caring for them. Maybe you're their carer. I think that's unbelievable. I think that's being very successful. I think maybe you're Martin Heppel, the other presenter from the Resilience Project, who's he's before this happened, he was doing 15 talks a week and then catch up with people one on one. He was helping so many people, like literally hundreds of thousands every year. I don't think it matters how many you're helping. It's just if you are there for other people and you're not focused on yourself and your own, how much money you're making. The more you're helping someone else, I think the more successful you are because I think that is really, if you look at it, if we are going to be successful as a society, and I'm not talking about Australia, I'm talking about the world, like we're going to have to be there for each other and this is where we're being tested. And the better we are at looking out for other people, the better our ability is to get through this. I love that so much. Hugh, we want all of the listeners to leave these episodes with recommendations of how they can instill their day with a little bit of joy or a little bit of happiness. And some of the recommendations are more serious than others, but let's start with one of the sillier ones. What is something you're reading, watching or listening to right now that you'd recommend to other people that's just bringing you some joy? 
So I'm re- well, what I'm reading right now is just behind me. It's, um, it's, I wouldn't recommend it to people because I think it will bore most people. Everyone I try and talk to about it just really sort of their eyes sort of glaze over. It's uh, running with the Kenyans. It's a, I'm just obsessed with running. Like running is my passion outside of my family. It's, everything's about running. So, And I'm reading a book which is a guy who explores why is it the Kenyans are, are superior middle distance runners. And if you're not into running, don't read that. Um, <laughs> Quite niche, but I mean, who knows? Someone out yeah. there might want to. If you're into running, please read that. It's unbelievable. But more than anything, rather than reading a book that probably has zero interest to you, what I'd recommend is music. I would recommend putting, if you find yourself in a, in a bit of a negative headspace, stick your headphones on and go outside. And whether it's walking a lap of the block or sitting down, go, so go to your music and go to songs. Don't try and think, now, what song do I love listening to? Just go to songs, put it on shuffle press play and if you aren't automatically captivated by the song going oh my god i love this press skip and wait till you get to your song that preferably a song you haven't heard in a while like i had our foster the people come up the other day and i haven't listened to them in ages i was like oh my gosh this music makes me feel it's such happy music their music is happy music and i listened to it and i just felt so good walking up in the block and i came back and i felt like a different person so Shuffle, keep going to find a song you love and get stuck into it. This happened to me with Jason Derulo the other day. So, you know, highbrow, lowbrow music taste. Lots <laughs> of the people, Jason Derulo, same, same. Just simple minds. And no one ever knows what music you've chosen. You can be your own little secret. <laughs> <laughs> Our second last recommendation from you is about food. What is like a comfort food that you go to when maybe it might be a really cold day or a really stressful day? What's the one meal you want to make or eat? Spaghetti bolognese. Next. No, no, I just, I just, my, 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 my son's obsessed with spaghetti bolognese at the moment, and that works well for me because I've always been obsessed. I've been obsessed since I can remember, and um, we're having it about three or four times a week at the moment, uh, which is Absolutely. not great for my wife, who is a vegetarian. But my wife is the most selfless and caring person I've ever met in my entire life, and so she's even sacrificing her diet to keep her son and her husband happy. <laughs> And finally, Hugh, what is one rule for life or mantra that you try to live by? I've never written like a mantra down, but I realise like the main thing we talk about the Resilience Project is is gratitude. And I suppose for me, it's always been, I mean, my mum spoke at my wedding. It was pretty much a year ago, 26th of April last year, we got, we got married and my mum got up and spoke and she talked about how the thing that she's noticed with me is that I've always been very grateful she didn't say grateful but I always would say to mum apparently as a kid how good's this so if we were going for a walk and it was a nice day I'd go mum how good's this or we had um, <laughs> I had a jasmine bush outside my window when I was growing up and mum on nice mornings would come in and open up the window and apparently I'd go mum how good's this I can smell the jasmine or whatever it is so my mantra has been to just I suppose when something good is happening, just to really pay attention and to my house, I might be just saying to myself, how good is this? But they don't have to be huge things. It could be smelling a jasmine bush. It could be that you notice that you're not in a rush for the first time in a while. It could be that whatever, you, you know, you had a nice cup of coffee, whatever it is. But I, I think my mantra has been just to pay attention to the good stuff because we are surrounded by it. And I don't care how isolated we are, how in lockdown we are, we are still surrounded by good stuff every day. So pay attention to it. 
Hugh, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your wisdom. I know I personally feel very uplifted after talking to somebody like you. So I imagine there are a lot of listeners who are feeling the same right now, Mish. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much. We are so appreciative of you making the time and we are huge fans of your work. So if you guys want to check Hugh out, we will put all the links that you need in the show notes and we'll give you a wrap at the end, Hugh, because you have a book that people need to read and a podcast that people need to listen to as well. Yeah, all the resources are out there. We have a journal as well, a wellbeing journal people might want to get stuck into now. But can I finish by doing something weird i just want to acknowledge my wife i haven't chatted about my wife enough in this in this little chat but she's the most incredible person and all the stuff i talk about being happy and it wouldn't i wouldn't be anywhere near as happy a person or coping as well as i'm right now without her she's just an extraordinary penny you're extraordinary i know she'll listen to this you're an extraordinary person i am so so lucky to have you in my life and our kids my gosh they are so lucky best ending to a podcast ever (laughs) thanks thanks guys thanks for having me Thank you so much for listening to this In Isolation episode of Shameless with Hugh Van Kulenberg. If you'd love more from Hugh, you can find him on Instagram at The Resilience Project. As for us, well, as we always tell you, Mish and I are independent podcasters who do this without the support of the network and from home at the moment. So the best way to support us is to show us how you're listening via your Instagram stories. Either take a screenshot of your podcast app and tell us your thoughts on the episode or show us how you're listening at the moment. Are you walking your dog while you're listening, doing some baking or procrastinating while working from home? We want to see it all. That is all from us. We'll be back in your ears on Monday with a wrap in the week that was in pop culture. Until then, we will see you on Instagram at Shameless Podcast or in our Facebook group, Shameless Podcast Community. See you on Monday, guys. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.